This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur, here together with uh, Tony Prescott. This is the last uh, podcast of our, the 10th edition of um, BCBT. Um, and essentially it's up to Tony and me now to discuss our talks. But also I think to reflect a little bit of what we tried to achieve this, uh, all the preceding BCBTs and the current BCBT. Because in some sense we also started this whole thing uh, the summer school and the, the, the Living Machine Conference that's now running for six years um, with the idea to really build or carve out, if you want, a, a multidisciplinary domain that, that combines the study of mind and brain with uh, the appropriate technologies to, to really build, if you want, artificial mind and brain as a model. And this is definitely reminiscent of, let's say, the cybernetics revolution of the 40s and 50s, right? And def I'm, I'm definitely uh, greatly inspired by by that period. And also, Tony, you started your talk with this famous Rosenblut and Wiener uh, quote, like the best model of a cat is the cat, and preferably the same cat. But so, and, and you use it more often in, in your talk, so you find it apparently an important point of departure. So why why do you find that a useful observation well I, I think it's interesting because so many people uh, misunderstand that quote uh -huh. because it's uh, you know it's meant ironically and uh, people use it as if it you know, occasionally people use it as, as if they think it's it's you're meant to take that literally mm -hmm. and uh, always study the cat if you want to understand the cat whereas what uh, Rosenbluth and, and Wiener were saying is look uh, you can't understand the cat uh, in its full detail um, because y you will end up with a description that's as complicated as the cat. Indeed, you won't ever get there because it's difficult, very difficult to measure. And uh, the whole point of, of what they were saying is that actually if we want to understand any animal such as a cat or a human, then we have to use models. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in biology, everyone accepts this, um, and, uh, but what they use is, is one animal as a model of another. Mm -hmm. So you know, typically in neuroscience now, we use mice as a model mm -hmm. of the human, mm -hmm. uh, and that involves a whole lot of assumptions which we don't often discuss, mm -hmm. or they're not often mm -hmm. pushed to the fore perhaps the way they should be. Um, but uh, even more than that, we, we use um, a, a, a mouse that might be uh, anesthetized mm -hmm. or uh, you know it might be uh, that we are uh, holding it down pinning it down in some mm -hmm. sort of head restraint and making it do some behavior mm -hmm. and in each of these situations we are stepping further and further away from the thing we want to understand which might be the freely moving freely behaving animal or person mm -hmm. so um, I like that Norbert Wiener quote because the rest of that article, it's a lovely short article, mm. uh, which sets out the value of physical models. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were writing in the 1950s, 1940s, 40s, yeah. at the time when they didn't really have computer models, mm. but they could build physical devices to try and understand stuff. And uh, that what, that's what he was advocate, mm -hmm. advocating. He was saying, let's 
build some simplified physical models in order to understand these complex mm -hmm. biological systems. Right. And of course, now we can build these very uh, sophisticated physical models, which mm -hmm. we call robots. Right. Now, so what is interesting about this is, also in your answer, in some sense now, we, we're, we can look at different kinds of models, right? Because using one animal species to try to understand another animal species uh, for that, you might use the word model, but it's it's in a rather different meaning than if you talk about constructing an artifact that is a model, right? So I think I think we should we should also keep that apart because, in terms of accessibility, you say okay, basically you say look, I have more experimental control over this animal model um, in order to make inferences about let's say the human brain, but if you talk about an artifact you really have to put that together from the bottom up. So it's, it's a level of, of control is, 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 of course, an order of magnitude larger than what you would have with an animal model. Yeah, I mean, so th with the, um, the physical uh, model, let's say it's a robot, you have access to absolutely everything that you're interested mm -hmm. in because you built it. You, exactly. you, you also pretty much know how it works, although what you can never be quite sure until you've built it what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, uh, that's the great thing about it, and of course the the reason that that people are sometimes skeptical about us using robots as models is, of course, all the biological substrates of the animal aren't present in the robots. Mm -hmm. We're trying to approximate them with you know silicon and plastic and metal, mm -hmm. and that's a hard job to do. And uh, so, it, the whether people accept that this is a good strategy depends mm -hmm. a little bit on whether they agree with the sort of position. I think that, that you and I share that, that these physical artifacts are in some interesting sense uh, devices that can obey the same principles mm -hmm. as humans and animals in the way they operate. Right, but, but there are two things here, right? That on the one hand, uh, you automatically then fall into this, this, this question like, okay, what that makes a good model? And uh, so, so we, we have discussed abstraction, abstraction is required, but then there already we see, we see an issue that models are being pr given the computational technologies we have we can start adding a lot of detail so we are slipping away from this original Rusen, rusenblatt and, and wiener idea uh, for of abstraction and construction because now we say no we can we can throw in as much detail as we want and end up with something like blue brain that is as complicated as the original neural system we made yeah. from and as incomprehensible right so um, that, so th this issue of abstraction, I think, is an important one to really protect when, when we speak about models. You have to be clear about your abstraction, uh, abstractions. And then the second thing, and that, that I th don't think is sufficiently appreciated, is that robots give us access to behavior, and behavior is a further constraint we can impose on models. Like uh, with animal models, what you see happening is that to keep things controllable, because that's that's the key constraint of any experiment, you push animals into a corner of their behavioral space where you might never find them in the real world. Mm. This is something Leia was pointing to, right? But her her animals that live now in these pens in, in, in the real world. Uh, so you might have if you so constrained or distorted their behavioral uh, output so much that actually you don't really understand what these animals are doing. And I think behavior is one of the key constraints we have and we lost it largely for over for many decades um, also in the reaction against if you want behaviorism which is strong adherence to behavior but the robot allows us again to bring in behavior as a constraint on these abstract 
constructs that we call models. Yeah, I think, uh, and this is sort of ethological uh, realism that you can begin to bring back uh, with with robot models is going to uh, really help. But it, 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 I think there's also an, uh, a little bit of a problem in this field that uh, you also need to, to, to work with these models. You have to have a, an understanding of how to do controlled experiments still. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we find a lot of people chucking together uh, physical devices that resemble some animal and it does some behavior mm -hmm. that resembles the animal behavior, but it's not necessarily helping us to answer any question. Mm -hmm. So uh, the methodology for how we go about this, what um, Breitenberg, who is another great you know, uh, inspiration for me mm -hmm. and I think for us both, what, what he called uh, synthetic psychology, mm -hmm. um, it, it's good to try and thrash out what is the best methodology or what are appropriate methodologies for doing synthetic psychology well. Right. And I think that's a, a bit what we've been trying to grapple with at mm -hmm. uh, uh, BCBT and Living Machines mm -hmm. is to look across the range of approaches people are, are taking mm -hmm. and ask questions like how do biologists and engineers need to work together in order to progress this field how, what is an appropriate way to design uh, an experiment that involves a robot as opposed to an animal? How do you, and, and I think that your talk today was a nice example of uh, when you were talking about precarious trial and error mm -hmm. and uh, linking the literature from Tolman through to early, early studies on how rats you know, look both ways in a maze before deciding which way to turn. Recent data from David Reddish showing mm -hmm. that there's really uh, activity in the hippocampus that shows the rats really thinking about turning left before mm -hmm. it goes right and then showing in a robot model that has embedded within it a model of that neural system mm -hmm. that we can capture those properties and i think uh, within the 10 years we've been doing bcbt i think our understanding of that methodology has progressed actually mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's not straightforward to see how to do this when you first get going with it right no no absolutely so i think this uh, so, so what I see that methodologically what helped me a lot um, is that we always have been advancing our models along along two lines or two levels of abstraction. So, so one, the distributed adaptive control theory, which is very strongly anchored in, in behavior and robotics, which helps me to think about, about behavior and underlying, if you want, psychological processes of memory, attention, decision-making, action selection, and so on without immediately constraining myself by substrate, like how can neurons do this? What I, what I always did try to do at that level is to say, well, let's at least not violate the obvious. Let's not violate things we know, such as neurons do not broadcast global information to each other, for instance, right? So you, you try to impose these kinds of constraints, you try to keep any kind of rules of learning based on local information and so on. But then, so, so that helped us to really build these integrative behavioral models, which means you have to really think about real time, real world, embodied control. And then in parallel, we would run these more detailed models where we say, okay, here we make a prediction about, let's say, conjunctive representations playing a role in, in, in optimal decision-making, right? That, that one of the early predictions we had was that the sensory that sensory motor states are like the primitive representation elements for optimal decision making in a Bayesian sense, and that then became a driving hypothesis. To look at the brain, and with that we went to the hippocampus, 
and, and using very detailed and, and also anatomically and physiologically sophisticated models, working with uh, Cesar Renacosta and, and John Lisman, we really could interpret uh, a lot of properties of this hippocampal system that, that looked initially very puzzling. But in that case, we didn't worry too much yet about behavioral consequence. But once we nailed that model and we had the basic principles in place, then we could bring it together again in a robot model. Because now I could replace a bunch of the, let's say, memory systems that I had defined more algorithmically with a much more constrained model of hippocampal processing that then suddenly gave me new features that I had never thought of before. Because initially in, in DEC, I was always thinking about short-term memory in terms of a, a sequential representation of, of sensory motor states that I could then link to goals for, for policy generation. But then by mapping that back to the hippocampus, we learned that actually hippocampus is doing mind travel, right? It's exploiting these sequences to in vicarious trial and error to actually make predictions and, and have an internal simulation of what the world might look like when you go in one direction as opposed to the other. And that's now a whole new feature that we unlocked in the context of this overall framework of, of DAC and, and, and optimal control or, or robust control uh, in the context of behavior. So there's a real, very constructive synergy now between these lines of modeling that I think it took, it took of course, some time to, 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 to build that momentum. But I think now we're really uh, gathering the fruits of that. And if we, uh, if we say that the core problem, and I don't think there's one problem, there's many problems we're interested in, but one core problem is the, the question of architecture. What is the uh, control architecture of the brain? And obviously that's you know, the core question behind a lot of your work. Um, then there's, there's a top-down way of approaching that, which is you look at behavior, you look at what systems in principle could generate that behavior, and you try and build those systems and demonstrate that they're sufficient. Uh, and then there's the more bottom-up approach. You look at the circuits that you find in, in the biological systems that have that behavior, and you see how those circuits could have properties that, that could instantiate uh, those, those principles. I mean, so w would you agree there's this, 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 this combination of top-down, bottom-up that you're trying to do sort of in parallel lines, mm -hmm. and they're trying to feed in to answer these central questions about the architecture. So the, um, there are the different levels of description here, but um, in a way we're, we want to push for the high level description, mm -hmm. which is going to be then the most powerful set of principles. Yeah, no, look, absolutely, you, you, you're right. And what, what it's really important to also not give any kind of exclusive status to either of the two. You have to do both to, 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 find, to identify the constraints. Um, so yeah, I, I see this really as, as a combined top-down, bottom-up uh, approach. However, I think it's important to observe that to make that work constructively, you must commit yourself to clear empirical benchmarks. Otherwise, we're in fantasy land, and then we very quickly wave our hands and we speak of biological inspiration and so on, but scientifically, that's not going to help us. So it's really important to to anchor bo both of these, the top-down and the bottom-up view and the models that come out of it to very clear empirical benchmarks, which, which must be grounded in the anatomy, the physiology, and the behavior that we, that we know brains and minds uh, generate. I mean, we, when we talk about that, though, I mean, there's kind of, with modeling, um, there's different goals that you can have, and, and uh, it's not always prediction that you're going to put first. It's, it's more... 
uh, things like sufficiency. Is the model sufficient to uh, generate the behavior that we're interested in? Mm -hmm. uh, and you might also have predictions. But my experience is that uh, people who have built uh, robot models have occasionally come up with some ex interesting predictions that biologists might not have had. Um, but that's it doesn't happen as often as, as maybe it could or should. Um, but actually, they have another contribution to make, which they can test the sufficiency of the model. They can mm -hmm. say, I instantiate this theory. Either it doesn't or does or doesn't work, or it, it needs to be improved in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing that it does that people overlook is that it also helps the biologists focus on what are the important questions, because uh, biologists, you know, as any natural scientist, uh, tend to be attracted by phenomena that they can observe, and then they think, oh, well, I can study this phenomena. And, and, and we, they don't always pick, and because you can't, uh, uh, the ones that are going to be important mm -hmm. in terms of understanding function. Whereas mm -hmm. there's an engineering approach which says, well, in order to solve this problem, we, ha we probably have to have this kind of mechanism. Mm -hmm. Can you see that in the brain? So it's, it forces a different kind of question into the biology. Well, I, I know you, you are a nice guy, but... The sufficiency argument, I'm, I'm not so convinced by that, you know, because it's very weak, right? It, 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 it's, we need testability. And sufficiency is, means something like, well, I haven't rejected it yet, but I might in the future. And I think what we should not forget is behind any model are assumptions. And assumptions are testable predictions. Or that from these assumptions, you can derive testable predictions. And I think people are often not paying enough attention to that. They often run away from their predictions because probably they know if they get declared, the model collapses immediately because the, the, the assumptions were just too strong. And so, so that, that's one thing about sufficient, be behind is a, a sufficient model are testable assumptions that, that, that we should look for. Okay? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think sufficiency is part of it. Completeness is another, you know, mm -hmm. sort of the more of detail of the system mm -hmm. you can capture, the better you're going. And I think that's where you're principle of convergent validation mm -hmm. comes in. It's a, it's a question of completeness. Can I account for the biology at multiple levels? No, not So I that. think if you can take that, that, mm -hmm. that, that together with the sufficiency, then you start to uh, really be able to say, well, uh, anything that can fit all these mm -hmm. criteria is going to be a good model. And yet, great if you can do prediction mm -hmm. too. But um, you know, the, I think to some extent, uh, neuroscience, for instance, has been too captured by this hypothesis testing mm -hmm. uh, idea. So to get in a, a top journal, you have to say that you're proposing a new theory of X, mm -hmm. you've got this strong hypothesis, you tested it, the data you know, uh, came out the right way, mm -hmm. uh, and you published your paper. And that encourages people not to build on what's gone before so much, but to say that, oh, I've done something new. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it encourages an element of cherry picking which has resulted in, I think, in recent years, people saying, well, we need to go back uh, to the beginning and, and measure the brain completely without having these a priori theories about how it works. So I don't know if hypothesis testing, uh, the way it's been done in neuroscience, can mm -hmm. just be imported into synthetic psychology. But, so. but I, I really disagree with you now. <laughs> I mean, sorry. Now you're going too far. Because first, I, I believe that... Um, First, convergence validation, is, it's, it's more about how do you deal with the intrinsic indeterminacy of a model, right? So, so models have certain parameters, and you, 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 
you use these parameters to fit the curve in the end, right? It's like a, it's a curve fitting exercise in some way. And now you can add as many parameters as you have data points. So now you have a problem of overfitting. And to, to counteract that, you want to add more constraints from different levels of description. So hmm. the, the convergence validation is a way to think about this indeterminacy of models. And we saw examples of that also um, in BCBT that people want to explain a certain response curve and suddenly we have a new magic parameter in a model to do that. And that's nice, great, it's a way to think about that, that specific phenomenon, but as a model, it's not completely satisfactory, you know? And then if you now map that to neuroscience, I, I don't feel at all that neuroscience is, is sort of suffering from an excess of hypothesis. To, do the, to the contrary, I think it's suffering of, from an excess of, of technologies that, you know, people get enslaved or entrained by the technologies they have available. And every technology will unlock another set of, of potential correlations in the universe and we're going to chase them all down. So, so actually, I feel that, 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 that we, we're really hypothesis-starved and, and data-rich. Well, I, I think that y what you mean by hypothesis, what I mean by hypothesis is something a bit different. So uh, what I'm thinking of in terms of a hypothesis is, is it can be some quite relatively straightforward, say, a, a way of, of saying, well, uh, people in the past have said this system is wired up in this way, and here we have data that shows something different. Ah, like that, okay. Yeah, so ah. uh, what, right. what we are, what we're lacking in neuroscience and, uh, is truly explanatory theories of systems. Absolutely. And yes, explanatory theories should give rise to predictions, mm -hmm. but um, I think they should explain first. So, I mean, I've, uh, my reading of philosophy of science, uh, I've been kind of, I, I was, you know, schooled in the 1980s when Popper was uh, mm -hmm. everything. And... Uh, yeah, I always forget how old you are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think the sort of... the uh, All the emphasis on Popperian falsification, which is good experimental design, mm -hmm. has detracted from the need to have strong explanatory theories. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I read David Deutsch's Fabric of Reality, mm -hmm. And he's a physicist, but the first chapter of that book really ra drives home the difference between science as explanation and you know, science as a predictive mm -hmm. tool. Mm -hmm. And these are two quite different things. Science as a predictive tool is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're explaining anything. And to me, the first goal of science is to explain. Sure. Look, I completely agree with you. So, but so there actually, I was I, I did my my uh, philosophy of science uh, in German. So, so you can imagine what the content was like, uh, rather normative. Uh, but of course, the, it, it included Popper, but not only. But indeed, it, it's limiting. Popper is definitely limiting, and Deutsch is right. And the criteria for any theory is, in my opinion, threefold. It is to explain and predict and control. Hmm. Right? And the, these are, for me, the criteria of a theory. And that's why DAC is phrased the way it is, because we try to explain adaptive behavior, different forms. Um, we make test all predictions and then we control real-world systems or we control recovery in patients. Right, so this, for me, those are the three criteria. And what, what, what has helped me a lot to, to, to make sense of these methodological requirements is, is, are these, uh, these ideas of Baston Frasen, a uh, philosopher of science in, who, who wrote his book, um, The Scientific Image, who, who was basically advancing the idea that, that, that theories 
are actually empirically just need to be empirically adequate so we just have to accept that they're the best possible description we have today of a set of phenomena but they are contingent they're evolving they're dynamic and at some point they might be rejected and that helped me a lot to escape from this very stringent normative Popperian mm. framework where you always are so stuck with with falsification because uh, it, it, it is definitely limiting and, and not helping us forward, especially if you're in a domain where you have to cut across many levels of description, in particular, mind and brain. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the, the problem with, with Popper, and indeed when I was studying this in, I think it was 1980, this was already evident, was that uh, if your theory is wrong, if, if it's been falsified, uh, there's there's no way in that framework to say well that's a better theory than any other. But in fact, we we live every day with with theories that are falsified. And as you, I think you said today, you know all models are wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've got to live with these wrong theories, wrong models, and that's we've right. got to try and improve mm -hmm. them. And I mm -hmm. think I I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Explanation, prediction, control mm -hmm. are three very good drivers for how we can make right. uh, better theories. Yeah. So, but I I do think that we we. We can't just look at the biological sciences as a model for how to do this uh, new kind of synthetic mm -hmm. uh, science. I do think that there's a, a, a gap in science for these explanatory theories, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what we're, we're trying to fill. And maybe yeah, we, can, we can make predictions off that, and you made some predictions based on DAC, which you described today, mm -hmm. and which... Uh, the the other hard part of this is, of course, persuading a biologist then to test your prediction. <laughs> right, <So>. yes, sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, actually, we, we have succeeded in doing that once in a while, right? Including Edward Moser has yeah. been testing uh, some of our predictions, which is great. Um, but also there, you should see these predictions as a form of dialogue with the empirical sciences. So it's not like, oh, now I have this normative statement and, and you empiricists go test it, right? It's, it's part of the dialogue that you have to try to establish, which is not always easy because the, the, the empirical scientists or the, the, the biologists are not necessarily trained to be very receptive to that. It's not a problem we have. But um, the biggest problem I see is that actually I started also with Tolman. And, um, and actually what's interesting is that since Tolman, and especially Hull, Clark Hull, so we talk early 50s now, there have been no more comprehensive integrative theories in psychology. And in my opinion, whether you like it or not, neuroscience is largely dealing with the mind. All these functional properties of brains, in the end, traditionally, were in the area of psychology. So this yeah. is what we try to explain, but we threw it away. And now we're very worried about what neuron X does to neuron Y. And of course, since we can measure thousands of them at the same time, now it's sort of huge population we're trying to analyze. And then we, we might talk about forms of signal transduction and whatever. But we'll have sometimes lost sight of the actual questions we're dealing with, which is what's memory, what's attention. As you also saw yesterday in Francesca's talk on the hippocampal system, and I think she did great. And she also clearly showed that, right? How we have to get back to these larger questions in this case about cognitive development for instance and i think this is where the synthetic psychology can really help to link mechanism to again function or in other words brain and body to mind i think i mean i would agree but i i would say piaget was also somebody who was looking for these large-scale theories and you know and up until certainly the 70s was was developing them and i think you can look at 
uh, Piaget and you can see almost where psychology has gone right but also gone wrong because in you know, taking apart all of Piaget's experimental work and uh, he, he was a good experimentalist but he uh, over-interpreted his results I think is what we can say uh, and uh, people have thrown away his whole framework on the basis of, of that mm -hmm. you know whereas uh, and I think now development psychology is is fairly theory free or, or they're into different camps you know mm -hmm. which are quite far apart and uh, it, it's difficult to to see how we can pull some of these areas of experimental psychology I know development cognitive neuroscience is kind of a field mm -hmm. but it's not as big as it should be certainly mm -hmm. in in the psychology community sure and there is this kind of gulf between the neuroscientists the uh, developmentalists the cognitive science who are trying to bridge that gap but but not necessarily succeeding mm -hmm. Well, look, you're right, but but in that sense, I think what happened. So yeah, so Piaget is interesting for me. It's really a, a, a transitory figure because what's interesting about Tolman and Hull, they had this physics metaphor in mind. So they really wanted to build a still logical, positivistic model or theories of of, of the mind, which didn't really work out for them. But they definitely had the, intu the right intuitions. They're really on the right track. Piaget already starts to get dissolved in in a in a universe of, of different experimental manipulations and interpretations and resonances with interpretations. So Piaget, is, it's, it's very difficult to sort of condense that into one comprehensive theory that covers the whole of psychology. Well, he right. has this theory of uh, equilibration, which, uh, with, which has adaptation and assimilation as its two sides. And you can really link that. I mean, he didn't talk about dynamical systems as as such, mm -hmm. but essentially what he was describing uh, was how dynamical systems can self-organize. Uh, and uh, he was writing just before, you know, the second wave of connectionism, mm -hmm. and you can really see how his ideas have been validated mm -hmm. to a large degree by sure. what people mm -hmm. have been doing mm -hmm. uh, no, with sort of tho those kinds mm -hmm. of learning models. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it hasn't yet really fed back into psychology because I know when I talk to developmentalists, mm -hmm. they all sort of uh, get very, uh, very uh, upset and annoyed when you say, oh, Piaget was, was mm -hmm. great because they think he's ancient history. Right. I mean, he is a historical figure mm -hmm. and his experimental results are now, you know, for the museum. Mm -hmm. But I think there was a, a core set of ideas there. Mm -hmm. He was really battling cognitivism as well. Sure. I mean, he was, mm -hmm. he was at a time when cognitivism was very strong. He was... He was one of the figures that was exactly. they were he trying to the, push aside. Sure, he was one of the lone voices yeah. right, of reason. Yeah, And so I agree with that. But what I want to say, I'm not disagreeing about the, the, the key role that Piaget should be playing in our current thinking about, about the mind. But as compared to Hull and Tolman, Piaget's outlook was not covering the whole of psychology. He was clearly focusing on adaptation, development, and change. But for instance, if you look at, at Tolman, for instance, he really wants to go the whole way from, from genetics, the uh, endocrine system, uh, motivation to cognition, um, um, moral thinking and consciousness, right? the, whole, the whole enchilada. And, and Piaget already reduced it a little bit. That's not a criticism of Piaget, but, but that's a, it, it is, for me, it was signifying the direction psychology was taking. It's sort of becoming more fragmented and also reduced in its ambition. Mm. And I, I feel that the synthetic psychology we're now advancing, using the term from Breitenberg, also is a, is a real opportunity 
to put psychology back on the map of science to say, no, this is what it's really about if we want to understand the brain. These are the questions we've got to worry about. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons maybe why we're harking back to these figures from you know, the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s mm-hmm. is that it has become much harder in science to be the sort of generalist that these figures were in some way and to, to be able to, to go across different disciplines of mind mm-hmm. uh, and understand them. And uh, so there's there's a need to build sort of interdisciplinary expertise, which is going to be largely teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and there needs to be uh, an understanding that that should be the strategy. And I think part of the uh, of the issue at the moment is is it's still hard to to do that. There's a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity mm-hmm. and how to support that. But uh, still, some of the uh, aspects of the world of science mm-hmm. militate against uh, really interdisciplinary mm-hmm. work. Well, th- th- no, I agree. This is a very important point because I think interdisciplinarity definitely is is high risk, right? So, and in the face of of scientific disciplines, they get more specialized, they get more technology driven, that they're also very much influenced by their own local cliques and networks and and tribes, if you want, it's very tribal. Uh, On top of that, we have incentive systems that are driving people into into very ruthless competition. of course, this this leads to that all the forces are stacked against what we need. So the mm. forces are stacked against the multidisciplinarity and also the freedom to try risky hypotheses. Right. So certainly in an environment where right now much more value is placed on what's called innovation or immediate impact, as opposed to let's say fundamental uh, advances. So yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right, and I think that um, the way through that for us has been that. In the synthetic psychology, we actually are building artifacts, and we are also having impact in robotics. We can solve certain problems, or we can contribute to solving problems, uh, not only in the psychology or the, the application of robots, but also really in the control of robots. That that, that gives us a bit more traction yeah. and maybe a bit more, also if you want, um, protection from from this this kind of criticism. And of course, also in our case, to, that we were successful in mapping. The, the theory of DAC to the most effective neurorehabilitation method for stroke recovery, um, of course, has helped us a lot because basically we have changed, if you want, the criteria on which we have to judge uh, theories in, in neuroscience and psychology by saying, well, it's not only about convincing your peers, it's about actually having measurable impact in the real world. If you claim to know how the brain works, please go fix a patient somewhere. And if we would just apply this this con- this criterion consistently, I think we would reduce a lot of noise in the field and get things recalibrated in a maybe a bit more constructive way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, it's actually, with hindsight, it's a bit surprising to me that uh, there isn't more emphasis within the field of cognitive science on trying to uh, discover new therapies. I think mm-hmm. it's coming coming back now. I certainly hope so. But it didn't feel that way, you know, uh, 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, And uh, to some extent, I think cognitive science has, has tried to keep its focus on understanding mind and mm-hmm. understanding uh, the uh, unimpaired mind as, as a first step is, is a good way to go. Uh, it's also seeded some of the potential uh, to do uh, applications and impact to 
disciplines like AI unnecessarily, mm -hmm. I think, because actually a lot of the best ideas in AI come through psychology, through psychology and cognitive science mm -hmm. and then get sort of rediscovered uh, yeah, as like right. AI. Mm -hmm. um, but then I think the other way around, they, the cognitive science hasn't done itself any favors by disconnecting a, a little bit from psychiatry and all these other disciplines that are concerned with uh, brain disease and impairments. Sure. So yeah, but you know what plays a role there? I think that given the incentive structures we, we try to survive in, people have become very risk averse. And as we earlier agreed, all models are wrong. But as long as you can resonate with your peers and support each other's models, everybody can feel confirmed, uh, com comforted and supported. But as soon as you map to the real world and you say, okay, here's my model of schizophrenia and now I'm gonna bring it to the clinic, that's high risk mm. because then if it doesn't work, it's really very obvious. Mm. And I think, so that's not a problem. People are very risk averse. That's why they don't want to make that step. So we have to really rethink the incentive structures in order to, uh, to open that up. But in a way, I think what we're also saying is that uh, we don't want this. We, it's not helpful to have this gap between uh, so-called pure science and on one hand and so-called applied science on the other, that the best, uh, basic or pure science also mm -hmm. has implications in the real world that people have overlooked sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also, a, a, again, within a sort of academic publishing, uh, there's sort of a preference for mm -hmm. these sort of big discoveries in pure science so mm -hmm. that you can make your career by just advancing right. knowledge without having to have innovation and impact. So I'm kind of in favor of having more em em emphasis on the innovation side mm -hmm. as a way of driving thinking within science, provided it's you know done sensitively. Right. Now, this is this is really this is a, these are good points, and I, I agree with you. And in some of them, can go back to the the cyberneticians again, right? Because many of them had actually real world concerns. Dick yeah. Wiener working on control systems. Also, um, um, Ashby was a psychiatrist, right? So they, they, they were worrying about mm. real problems. And for them, as far as I understand reading about them and reading their work, there was no divide between these applied concerns and the mm. principles they took from it. They never complained about it or saw any, 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 any thresholds or, or obstacles between that. And now we have, this has been all reconceptualized in a way. Um, oh, actually also Vannevar Bush, right? Shortly after the Second World War, or uh, science, the endless frontiers, uh, setting up the National Science Foundation of the States, it's very much prosperity depends on science. There's a natural linkage between the human condition and science. And that was never really questioned. And now it, it seems to be, we have to have this divergence, like, oh, we have all these people concerned about the so-called basic questions, and then we have other people who do the sort of application of these, and the two shall never meet. And I think that's a massive mistake. I don't think that that needs to be the case. And I also see it in our own work. Uh, if Let's take again the example of neurorehabilitation. Every intervention is like an experiment. And every patient provides new and valuable information on the basic theories we have. Like we have also ideas about how error might, might uh, modulate uh, learning in, in, in stroke patients. These are hypotheses, and they're being tested every day in the clinic with real patients, and we get the information back in real time, and it's advancing our theories. And I think this tight coupling between basic and applied science, which I then call Vico's loop, after one of my heroes, Giambattista Vico, 
of uh, the fact and the truth are reversible. Um, we can find these loops. We can find these synergies between application and the basic science if you look for it. Mm. And it's not happening enough. I think, and uh, another thing which is happening now, which which certainly wasn't as evident uh, a decade ago, is people actually looking uh, at the technologies that are coming out of mm -hmm. uh, uh, robotics, AI, cognitive science, and now saying, well, do we want these technologies? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so there's much more of a focus on, uh, okay, where is this going to go? You know, who's uh, who's going to benefit from this? And there's a, uh, a growing realization that some of the technologies developed in the past 20 years have increased prosperity, but for the few rather mm -hmm. than for the many. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we want to do something to uh, counter against that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if we want, so I think it, you know, a lot of our science is publicly funded, but also I think as scientists, we want to feel that the contribution we're going to make is going to have a positive impact. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we build that into uh, what we're trying to do here? How mm -hmm. do we ensure that our goals and uh, well, not not just our goals, but the, the work that we're doing, we're going to focus it towards positive impacts, beneficial mm -hmm. impacts. Right. Well, that, that's really, I think, the key question we got to answer collectively, and I, I think that um, we have to pick our problems carefully, but maybe also rethink a little bit how how have we really structured uh, the scientific enterprise? You know, and I think. The main criterion right now for our science is is how much you get appreciated by your colleagues. And that's very strange, right? Because these tribes also develop their own biases and expectations that might be completely besides reality. And if you if you also look at impact, for instance, you, you can look at many domains, uh, cardiology, uh, cancer, brain disease, uh, education, uh, I don't think that after many decades of following this sort of peer-based uh, validation of, of a field has led to now a massive progress. I mean, uh, of course, we cannot say there's been zero progress, but it has not been fantastic. Like in the case of neurorehabilitation, we looked at this over the period 1975 till now. We analyzed dozens of meta-analysis of the impact of stroke rehabilitation, and it stayed the same. So your 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 chances of recovery uh, 40 years ago are the same as to were now. Well, that should give us some pause because in the same period of time, billions of euros have been spent on brain research uh, and associated fields. Mm. Zero impact. Mm. So so what's wrong here? And I think what's wrong here is really the model in which we have been pursuing the science, which was sort of divide and conquer run after the technologies, go for uh, greater levels of detail, or essentially just measure whatever the tools allow us to measure without even posing questions or having driving hypotheses. And I think by sacrificing psychology and as our anchor point of questions, this has been the consequence. And I think the way back is still long and we're not doing very well. Uh, so that sounds a bit pessimistic. <laughs> no, because we're doing something about it. We're in the clinic. We already treated 800 people, and that's the beginning. There's still about 59 million to go. But in terms of you know, getting uh, science back on track towards mm -hmm. solving some of these problems facing uh, humanity, mm -hmm. uh, what is what are the quick steps that we could make? Mm -hmm. You know, sort of collectively, mm -hmm. or at least we could agitate mm -hmm. as a community okay. to do more of. 
Okay, th yeah, sure. No, look, you're, you're right. And um, th th that's also interesting. You see, both with Tolman and Hull, that I talked about earlier, they really had those clear this clear outlook. They also, of course, lived through the Second World War, and they also saw it as their responsibility as psychologists to make recommendations and have impact at that level. Like, how do we advance the human condition? And I really think that should be our concern today. So that also means we have to rethink our science. Like, how are we going to really deal with the human condition? Is the way um, in which we have organized the scientific enterprise actually really helping us to to advance the human condition? Take as an example economy. Economy, in the end, is strongly dependent on human behavior. So how can we advance economy without linking it very, very closely to psychology and psychology to neuroscience, right? So, so I think that there, there are bridges we have to build to make to make progress there and we also have to i think uh, be willing to, to to pose a larger question because if we want to change the human condition positively which we better do sooner than later because we're facing some serious challenges uh, and global warming is only one of them but let's say uh, income inequality which is a very much social psychological phenomenon I think is, is a massive stress on our society we have to deal with. But that means we have to understand things like greed mm. and hoarding and tribal behaviors and uh, forces that drive inequality. Do we have anything in our hands today to do that? No. Then you can say, well, look, you know, we have to improve education. Um, but the most recent meta-analysis on the, the main factors that drive education in terms of their its impact, in terms mm. of of learning outcomes are not very conclusive. So, so there, we still don't really know what we're doing. And I think it is it is really urgent that we rethink very carefully how we organize the scientific enterprise, how we link it to the real world, and also how we advance more integrative uh, paradigms to bring these disciplines together. Because I think to understand the human condition in the end means we have to go from almost, let's say, the physics of, of bodies and brains to the sociology and culture that they can give rise to. And right now, we don't have these integrative paradigms. I think also, I mean, uh, e economics is is vitally important for, you know, sort of fulfilling basic human needs, but also uh, there are other other needs, and and there are you know sort of epidemics of uh, social diseases, mm -hmm. or I mean, uh, loneliness is not a disease, but it's it is is at epidemic proportions in a in a world that has never had higher population mm -hmm. um, and if we can and higher levels of social networking I can add to well that, that's right? true yeah mm -hmm. so uh, if we can advance theories that can help address that mm -hmm. so I think uh, it, and partly this is about what collectively we are trying to optimize you know? mm -hmm. so I think we're the uh, the beginning of this has to be some theory about the human life and Mm -hmm. what it's for you know this, i mean it's not for anything i don't think as materialists mm -hmm. we would say but at the same time you know we have uh this ability to be aware of ourselves mm -hmm. and to decide you know uh what we want our mm -hmm. life to be for uh to set our own goals um and uh, so that th there's uh one of the goals i think of our science is to try and help answer that question because uh, what personally i wouldn't want to do is to spend my life basing my and my goals and, and, and my daily efforts on uh, things which turn out to be illusory. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a l that is a risk, you know, mm -hmm. that, that there are lots of false prophets out there mm -hmm. giving you reasons to live which aren't, aren't good ones. Well, this is, this is 
this is the crux of the whole story, right? Because basically what you're saying is that we must go back to the basic question of eudaimonia. What, what, and that was the, the reason also why the, Greek, the Greeks never built a rocket to fly to, 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 to colonize Mars, because their main question was, what is the virtuous life? And, and that really means, like, what's the good life, right? What is virtue? How do, what are the norms we should apply to that? And we, we have drifted away from those questions a lot. We, ha we always have felt like, well, there are forces shaping our society that we don't need to touch from that, from that scientific perspective, but maybe we should, because in our also definitely more and more secular society, where else can we get our norms from, if not from a deep understanding of who we are and what our limitations are? And I yeah. think this is an important responsibility now for psychology and neuroscience to pursue, but there are very few people who do that, uh, and if they do it, they do it after retirement, because it is just a very risky proposition right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it was not this Pope, but the last one that said that some of these questions are for religion, not for science. Um, but uh, uh, you can sort of see what he's getting at, in that maybe the science, scientific outlook as it is, is, is too narrow. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, uh, I, I don't think in, in principle that we should be excluded from taking a more scientific approach mm -hmm. to these questions of, of how we, uh, of what we should go for in life, mm -hmm. but perhaps we also have to stretch what we're doing as science, as scientists to encompass more of the humanities as an mm -hmm. outlook. Absolutely. So, no, what I find interesting there is that um, it's very funny that we live in this sort of bubble of, of happy beliefs about who we are as humans. For some reason, we have great difficulties with, with recognizing also the kind of, of, of destructive animals we, we are and, and definitely can be. And we often see that now in our society as sort of anomalies that we can sort of, we don't need to worry about too much. Criminals, we can lock up, they're away, and for the rest, everything is fine. But Understanding the human condition to me also means especially the destructive forces that humans can mobilize because only then can we, if you want, defend the future of humanity against those destructive forces. And I think I would see that as an important objective of our research. Also for that reason, this is one of the motivations why we are uh, very much involved in in the study of, of the Holocaust and the commemoration of the Holocaust and Nazi crimes because I feel this is a source of, of, of highly relevant information about the limitations of humanity. And we, we have, I mean, however ugly and, and terrible this is, and it really is terrible, um, we have to understand these boundaries on, on, on what humans can, can accomplish for good and bad, because only then can we find countermeasures to protect ourselves from ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that has stood out for me in this BCBT is actually how many times, uh, sometimes in the talks, uh, sometimes in the interviews, and, and very often over dinner, that the conversations have come around to these uh, bigger, if you like, questions about, uh, you know, what are we going to do about uh, uh, human society and, and, and where it's going, uh, how we... we uh, can take account of the fact that we are, uh, I think as uh, John Doyle put it, sort of apes with guns, and that's a very dangerous situation. Um, and as you say, you know, we, we have to understand our own limitations better. Um, we also are now not just apes with guns, but apes with uh, 
uh, internets and AIs, and there's all the potential that that can have, and, and robots, of course, mm -hmm. uh, to both you know improve our condition, but um, fundamentally change it in mm -hmm. a way, because uh, some of these devices we can use to uh, almost transform what we are. Sure, yeah. absolutely. And, uh, you know, we can, we're getting to the point, and I think this is one of the exciting but also frightening things about this area of living machines where we can interface our brains. Uh, mm -hmm. We already do, of course. I mean, uh, a screen is a kind of interface, but we are uh, able more and more to, to connect to these technologies in a very direct and intuitive mm -hmm. way, uh, which is, is, is very exciting. But that the implications of that, I think, for the human mind, I think we also mm -hmm. touched on this, you know, how technology changes the minds of children. Yes. And the minds of our children are going to be different from ours when we were growing up. So, uh, and then I think, so what we want to do probably more in the future with our school and our, uh, our conference is, is to see how uh, we can bring all these things together. Mm -hmm. So they do, they do seem to be strands that converge in a way, which I guess yeah. is why we call it convergent science. Absolutely. Now, look, I, I fully agree. Uh, and to also finish off this, this last point we were discussing, one, one massive weakness that, that the human mind has is that we always adjust our set points very quickly. You know? So um, we see disasters happening around us. It might be mad dictators with nuclear arms or, or mad dictators controlling the most powerful nation in the world. It might be hurricanes. It might be global warming. The Anthropocene is upon us. It might be self-driving cars, right? There's a long list of things that not that long ago we saw as real threats and we were really worried about it. And very quickly, we changed our set point. We are like a, like uh, cognitive homeostats, you know? Yeah. So, so we very quickly zoom into this new set point that, that sits at this, at this new average now of, of disastrous challenges. And it doesn't worry us anymore. So I think this is a weakness of, 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 the, of the human mind, that we are often driven to action by uh, homeostatic and also emotional systems that very quickly readjust to these new norms. And I think we have to really develop a metacognition here, a critical self-reflection that tells us, no, we cannot give in to certain outrages of our human norms, and we must insist that we're going to act against them with the best of our science. And there, the program, I think, is also partially spelled out already at the level of the United Nations, where you know, the sustainable development goals have been defined. I, if, you, if you look at them in detail, then I think they're here they're a bit redundant, but you know, there's some obvious things like equal opportunity, uh, food security, right for education, and so on. So that agenda is defined, but what we're completely lacking today is a comprehensive science, technology, and also uh, socioeconomic agenda to bring these things about. And I really feel that, that, that the, the Living commun uh, Machines community and the BCBT community that, that we're trying to grow should start to focus itself more, or occupy themselves more with those challenges because this is our future, this is the future of our children, um, and of course, we don't want to compromise their future too much. So yes, I, 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 we we have to really rethink to to place the school and living machines and also the convergent science network on a, a, a plateau where we can really start to 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 be also agents of change, if you want, or positive change, 
by helping us to build new frameworks, look upon ourselves, and how we can change the reality for the better. Mm. I mean, I think you're you're right that we we need to be very much aware of what what we might be losing uh, uh, as we are gaining new things. Uh, we also, I think, have to be and it's uh, it, the flexibility flexibility that you're talking about to sort of adapt to culture is is almost what's got us here as a species. And you know, and maybe we are a bit complacent, but we have in the last hundred years done amazing things. I think we've reduced absolute poverty in the world from 80% of the population down to below 20, and it's forecasted to go down to 10%. So there's there are achievements that we can point to that things are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not absolutely pessimistic about you know, the, the fact that we can't solve these challenges. No, and in the past, we've always sort of relied on technology and science as, as one of the paths, not the only one, to resolve challenges. And yeah, I think that's part of the agenda is to say that uh -huh. you know, we can push science and technology in the right way and mm -hmm. we can deal with these problems. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to sound too pessimistic because actually intrinsically I'm not. I'm, I'm an optimist. That's why we engage with many challenging uh, questions. But we should be careful not, not to fool ourselves, right? And claim like, okay, we did all these great, humans have done all these great things. Um, I think that's also very doubtful. It's also a story we like to tell ourselves. Like, oh, in the end, we were great. We put a man on the moon. But if you look, for instance, at, at the, in the domain of health, where we are active, uh, the amazing thing is that indeed life expectancy has, has improved over the last decades dramatically. So right now, it would be people who are born now it will be like over 80. And it used to be the 60s, right? So for us, it'll be the 70s somewhere. So yes, dramatic improvements. But if you look at the, at the change in healthy life expectancy, it has stagnated mm. in the same period, mm. right? That's very interesting. So we can keep people alive longer, but that means it will be miserable longer. Mm. All right, so we should also... Well, they'd be paying for healthcare for longer. There exactly. might be something there. Yeah. No, but, but you see, that, 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 that that's very tricky. So when you say, okay, poverty has been reduced, but what does it really mean? So have we, we have built maybe a poor middle class that is living every day under all sorts of stress because they have to pay off their debts of their credit cards and their, their banks. And their, as yeah, we yeah. have seen also in the, the crash that happened in our economies uh, about 10 years ago. Right, so so I think we we should become more critical about these stories we tell ourselves. Like also this this popular story you hear about, oh, humans have become less violent because less people are being killed. But maybe that's exactly the same point as with with improved life expectancy. Yeah, we live longer, but we're miserable. So so okay, we, we're not being killed anymore. Uh, but maybe now we're just we slowly we made to die slowly because of cardiovascular disease that's induced by stress, but doesn't count anymore as, as aggression, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think we should be more subtle in how we interpret these kinds of so-called accomplishments of humanity. Yeah, I think we, we maybe reduce one problem and, and we create another one uh, somewhere else by doing that. And I think that's uh, sort of the way it goes. But uh, to some extent, these problems we're talking about. Um, are a product of our own misconception about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the fundamental goal or a fundamental goal for our field is to understand what we are mm -hmm. and perhaps correct some of those misconceptions. Sure. So some of those misconceptions, I think you can trace their roots uh, in uh, European philosophy and thought uh, and uh, to, to people that have, you know, mm -hmm. taken the idea of the soul and then translated it into the modern notion of consciousness and this idea that that you are a consciousness, which is 
somehow in your body, but not necessarily of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the most recent version of this is the notion that you could somehow take that and upload it into mm-hmm. a machine or mm-hmm. a robot and have eternal life. And I think right. this, th- this um, sort of very Western idea of the self mm-hmm. is at the root of some of these own problems, uh, our own unhappiness, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, because I think our happiness is linked to all these other physical sure. things, not mm-hmm. just in a sort of the, the consciousness is floating inside our heads. And then uh, a lot of these other problems that we have in the world are mm-hmm. are down to this kind of individualism mm-hmm. that we have really sort of put on a pedestal right. in the West. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So now, that, That's a really interesting point, you know, because in the Western cultural tradition, there is this this myth of the, the, the lone or the individual genius who sort of gives rise to change, right? So we think about... Also in art, for instance, you would think about the, the great composers, Mozart, Beethoven, and so on, who now are sort of dictating their will on all future generations of musicians because there's a fixed score from which that piece is now forever produced. And we seem to apply that model to to ourselves. Also, when we are outstanding, we have outstanding individuals like the, um, the captains of the technology industry. They have suddenly forgotten that they might have gotten in that position more by by sheer luck and contingency and not necessarily by individual genius mm. and so it's really interesting to see that the, these are the characters that are now suddenly you know pontifying about how they want to upload their mind or how they want to live forever but think about imagine we would have the mind of nero on on a on an on a hard disk somewhere, <laughs> who, would, who, would, who would care about turning it on, right? Mm. It might just be, it would, maybe it, we should have some norms or some ethical uh, rules that would prevent us from po- poisoning the cultural and psychological environment of future generations with the complete nonsense that the current self-declared, you know, prophets of the techno religion uh, seem to seem to have of themselves. Yeah, I think that that is a risk, and and we should, you know, sort of one of the things that. We should be talking about actually one of the more near-term risks, uh, but I think the uh, the the what we can do in a positive way, I think, is to you know help people, including those people, understand themselves better because mm-hmm. they're suffering from a delusion, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that delusion is probably making them unhappy, mm-hmm. uh, and also you know wishing for this mm-hmm. uh, Silicon afterlife or whatever. Um, and more and, money, probably. Yeah, and I think the so the. It, I, the interest that we have in human subjectivity, mm-hmm. which uh, I know you're doing a lot of work on, uh, should allow us, the goal should be to have a new understanding of the human self or mm-hmm. uh, uh, that helps us be more content with what we are. You know, mm-hmm. Because uh, my own sort of ideas in this, I guess uh, I, I look to sort of more to the Western religion, Eastern religions such as uh, Zen Buddhism, which I think have had this idea for a longer time, but they've never, you know, mm-hmm. they got us to a certain point with it. And I think we can take this idea and actually, well, say why these things that they discovered uh, might be true mm-hmm. um, through our understanding of the, sure, the but Buddha, mind. Buddha, Buddha is a bit, in some sense, also a bit frustrating, right? Because, hey, look, unhappiness results from wanting things. Mm. So that means I can be content and avoid unhappiness by not wanting things. So now the whole... The whole religious exercise is focusing on not wanting things. Okay, it's a it's a method. You can you can try to do that, but mm. it also means you're denying part of our humanity, which is we intrinsically want things. 
Yeah. So there might be other ways to deal with that that might be, let's say, more liberating and creative than saying, oh, let's not want. Yeah. Right? Uh, in, in some sense, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition has something similar, right? We should also not want outside of a very well-defined framework and then, in some sense, use religious meditation to stay with it at want. And if we, if we exceed the framework, then there are all sorts of rituals to get back into it. But maybe we also have to accept the fact that we are wanting things, that we do pursue these wants often in irrational ways, Maybe it's also through that acceptance that we can find a better way to to deal with it. Because if you look now, if if you look at 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 the way humans now go off the rails in our society, for instance, through addiction, right, which is a massive problem, especially in the states. Um, I think this tells us something very deeply about our society not being able to deal with people's wants mm. in in a, a sort of a, ma- a well managed way. And there you see, for instance, here in Europe, or also in Holland, where I'm coming from, the attitude towards, let's say, drugs of abuse has been very different and less suppressive. And the problems of want in that domain of addiction are there, but it's often more towards alcohol and less towards the kind of opiates that you see uh, creating havoc in the States. Mm. Right? So, so yes, we can then say, oh, let's all become Buddhists. But, uh, okay, in the West, it's also very expensive to go to these sort of Buddhist monasteries to meditate and look at the wall and so on. But maybe there are also more scientific, informed methods we can apply here to manage our wants through, yeah. let's say, other forms of metacognition. I mean, I think you're right. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I was um, uh, a big reader of Herman Hess when I was young. Mm-hmm. And uh, his book, The Glass Bead Game, is uh, I, I always read that as a metaphor for cognitive science. It was these groups of group of people that studied music and maths and all these esoteric things as a kind of path to enlightenment. Uh, and it was one of the things that inspired me to be a cognitive scientist. And I think, you know, Buddhism is a bit like that. There are the monks in, in their monastery, of which there are very few, and they meditate all day. And then there's everybody else. Uh, and in, not everybody can be a monk, clearly. Mm-hmm. And not everybody can or wants to be a cognitive scientist. So what we can do is, uh, you know, sort of with the insights that we gain, we can hope to reshape mm-hmm. society. And wh- one of the things that stood out for me in this school was uh, the, the talk that we had on decision making mm-hmm. and uh, agency from Patrick Haggard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, Patrick was, you know, a little bit hazy about, uh, you know, getting rid of the homunculus. I mean, he wanted to do that, but he didn't want to entirely vanish it. He still wanted something which was influencing our decision process. But, I mean, I think for, for me, perhaps for you, whatever's in influencing that decision process, there's not going to be a subject in there, ultimately. There's going to be other brain processes. Mm-hmm. May, maybe some of those processes we are going to label as self-processes, mm-hmm. and that's getting close to our theory of self. But I think what Patrick was saying, and I, I would agree as well, is this is going to change our whole way of thinking if this scientific view percolates into mm-hmm. society. It's going to change our, our, our way of thinking, for example, about yeah. how we, we, mm-hmm. we deal with people that abuse drugs, mm-hmm. you know, sort of uh, the whole notion that we punish people because they do crimes mm-hmm. may have to go out the window 
and we may have to, you know, more globally adopt a more Scandinavian mm -hmm. view of, uh, you know, prisoners' rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And there might be a path to do that by bringing some of these scientific ideas out to the public. Sure, no, I completely agree with that. You're, you're, you're right. And what's interesting else, I showed that in our own models, um, in this case of foraging, that we have this hidden assumption about that the mind is operating as a single integrated entity. But that's an assumption, right? And all, that's also what Patrick, in some sense, was alluding to. And uh, also others, like Mike Kazanika, has been talking about this, that um, you have these sort of dual process ideas about the mind, where, or as Mike Kazanika indeed also showed in, in, his split, in the split brain patients he worked on from Sperry when he was a student. But we don't, our metacognitive system that, that leads to, to our ability to declare and experience and have theories about ourselves might actually be rather disconnected from the, the, the subconscious processes that drive our behaviors, as for instance, this core behavior system that Bjorn Merker would talk about that I mentioned also this morning. These are very primitive systems that drive our wants, yeah. right? And they're automatic, they're, they're strongly genetically defined, they're operating really outside of the window of consciousness. We have no idea what they do, but we see ourselves doing things, mm. right? So, so I think this hidden assumption of, of this continuity and transparency of operation in the mind is, is breaking us up here. And if we are able to, to, to see more also the, 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 the internal contradictions that exist in minds, I think it might help us a lot by, by devising better interventions. So we, th there is a path to increasing contentment through this, but what does it involve then? If we, if, if my midbrain is is leading me down paths which mm -hmm. you know may be immediately rewarding but ultimately bad for me, what's the strategy? Well, to at least have the metacognition to recognize that. I think very often there is no metacognition about it. If, if people don't even know that mm. they can be driven by these forces that they don't have direct cognitive access to, then stuff happens to them. Mm -hmm. And they would say like, well, yeah, I just, it happened to me, I did it, right? But maybe what we have to understand is that through our consciousness, we can will ourselves into the future. We can will ourselves towards being one person or another by biasing our actions against Well, all now you're getting a bit mystical because this not is, at all. where's this homunculus that can will come back from? No, no it's a dual process theory, right? So. I'm saying that, that your executive systems combined with metacognitive systems can allow you to build a theory about yourself. And we all have this. Hmm. And these theories can be more or less elaborate because they say, well, I like running and cycling and I'm not much into chess nowadays, right? So I have a theory about myself. But these theories can be expanded to how you would behave under certain conditions where people might show destructive behavior, right? And if we just understand that we are able to have an insight in these factors. It's, it's in some sense a very psychoanalytic view on how we operate. Mm. But yes, I think this this is can at least be beneficial. Yeah. And so to, to by acknowledging its dual process or multi-process, and one process might not have direct access to the other, we have to learn to develop theories of ourselves. Right now we don't train people to do that. Mm -hmm. But it sounds a little bit like the monks uh, learning Zen Buddhism, no, but we're now training no. them to th think metacognitively. Exactly, to say, oh, I have once, 
and I have ones that might damage others or that might damage myself on the long yeah. run. So now I can rescale these ones because I have a theory. In the case of the Buddhist monks, you have to say, I'm going to meditate the hell out of my wants by staring at this wall for a long time. I have to reduce the wants that to disappear. Well, an alternative might be that you say, look, I have to understand myself, why I have these wants yeah. and how I can regulate them without damaging others and myself. I'm not, this, I'm not necessarily claiming this is a route to success, but I'm just giving you a hypothetical scenario of yeah. how a more rational approach could be deployed to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh. but now the, the one thing I was wondering, maybe one thing that, that you could do to this, I mean, we, we discuss often how, how are we going to coexist with technology, yeah. right? Would you see technology as, as assisting you in developing these kinds of metacognitive theories of, of your own behavior? Um, you mean as a scientist or, or as personally? Well, both. Um, well, yeah, I think we we export a lot of our cognition into these devices that we have, and they they're hugely powerful. I would, I mean, I would personally hope that with the advances in AI we are now making, that you know, machines will will take on some of the load of, of trying to develop theories. You know, and I think we can. There had perhaps hasn't been enough uh, focus on. Uh, uh, sort of automating scientific theory development. I know it's a, and there was a, a machine a few years ago that that rediscovered Newton's laws. <laughs> so it's maybe several hundred years behind uh, where it needs to be to help us now. But uh, I do think that we 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 already gain a lot from having all, all these uh, tools and machines and uh, also databases uh, that, right. that support our science. But and I think the the role of the scientist is changing as well mm -hmm. because we no longer need to remember everything we've read and have it mm -hmm. in our heads. We just can access it. So mm -hmm. for somebody like me who's kind of big picture, it, it it's great. You know, I can uh, I I don't have to remember the details, but I can go and find them when I need them. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do think that the, our cognitive capacity to do science is expanded by these tools, and maybe there is some exciting developments in the future where AIs will be helping us mm -hmm. identify new paths to mm -hmm. take. But so. but are you then, do you see that develop along these kinds of paranoid Bostrom scenarios, like uh, AIs will have a zillion different ways to cheat us out of reality and take over? Or, or do you think that, that our coexistence with these AIs will take a different form? Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of quite optimistic about that. I mean, I... Uh, I, I think superintelligence uh, will happen. I mean, I think there already is AI superintelligence mm -hmm. in lots of domains. You know, sort of chess playing is, is one where AIs are much better mm -hmm. than us. Al already, uh, you know, stock trading is another mm -hmm. where they do 90% of the stock trades. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there are a few domains of human behavior where we're still ahead of AIs and will be for some time. Uh, scientific discovery, I think, is is one that probably be okay for a while. But uh, I do think that uh, in these different areas, AIs are going to advance. Uh, I, the notion superintelligence is, I think you, you also agree this, is, 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 is not a good idea because I think there are multiple mm -hmm. uh, kinds of intelligence. And of course they all correlate. So uh, IQ is a, a good measure across the board, but it doesn't mean that all of the different parts of your intelligence are the same and operate in the same mm -hmm. way. Uh, so. And one of the goals, I guess, of what we're trying to do is to work out what those systems and components are um, and then build a theory of mind based on those. I think eventually 
we will be able to build machines that can reason about themselves, which is one of the defining uh, aspects of ourselves. Um, my own view, and I think if, if you watch a, a lot of science fiction movies as I do, uh, the, the bad AIs and the bad robots are always the ones that don't understand themselves, and mm -hmm. they have some, some mission, uh, perhaps one that's been programmed in by some misguided human. Uh, and I think humanity will still be its own biggest uh, risk, mm -hmm. uh, even in these coming days of AI, that people will misuse AI. Um, but I'm more optimistic that if we build AIs that can reason about themselves as AIs, they will actually be useful and helpful mm -hmm. uh, and not be motivated to take over and destroy right. everything else. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's right that, we, that we're thinking and talking about this. So. Mm -hmm. Of course. But do you feel that these kinds of alarmist messages going around the Internet right now, the social networks and all these declarations being signed by scientists like, oh, stop AI, we cannot weaponize AI. Um, we have to. This will be the most dangerous things we invent, right? So, uh, do you think we should we should be jumping on that train as well and sign all these declarations? Well, I did sign uh, uh, one or two of them. So, um, I think we do have a responsibility as scientists to to think about even sort of these low likelihood but very high risk scenarios. Um, so you know, sort of a, a superintelligence which would be very anti-human is, mm -hmm. I think, theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about what are the paths that could lead to that and try and make sure that those can't happen. So mm -hmm. I think it's right that we're already thinking about that now. Um, and But uh, there is the, there are quite a few people who are stoking paranoia, which I don't think is necessarily mm -hmm. helping. Um, and there's also a risk that we, you know, throw out the good with the bad, you know, that we, that we decide not to have uh, AIs and robots that are really going to improve mm -hmm. the human condition. Yeah, but, but don't you think that it's a bit of a propaganda exercise? Because first, we know what goes on in the field, and we know that there's still many obstacles before we reach general AI. Um, so for scientists to sign these declarations, to me, is also testifying to... Uh, an overstatement of the capabilities of the field. Like it's, it's also a little bit hyping a field that actually doesn't have the capabilities that it claims to have. For instance, take the, the DARPA robot challenge from 2015, where we th the benchmark was essentially the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster and have robots, humanoid robots, that can operate in these environments. It was one big disaster. And these robots are still remote controlled. You know, yeah. in the meantime, we have these huge propagandistic statements about, oh, AI is going to take over. Well, it's still far removed from that. And then secondly, what, what worries me is that this is driven very strongly by people with business interests. And if, if for instance, if I'm making money by selling cars that have autopilots, then indeed, just for my marketing purposes, I would like to give my customers the impression or the illusion that I care about their well-being and I care about ethical mm. standards. So by sort of fanning the flames of, oh, let's be concerned about AI, I'm, I'm creating trust with my customer so they buy my cars in which they can kill themselves if their autopilot is facing an unpredictable situation, which mm. also has happened. So that, that's the other, it's, there's also a hoax behind it, which we should be very careful with. And don't, don't forget, as you also said yourself, 
the biggest threat to man, to humans are humans. Yeah. And before the AI will take over, we might already have killed ourselves. You know. So I think AI should be much more worried about the real problems we're facing. And I can tell you, if you go to applied domains where we need more science, education, healthcare, and so on, we are still far removed from having effective systems. And I wish that we would put more energy in that direction as opposed to, to running around like headless chickens who lost their intelligence to be worried about artificial intelligence. Because on top of that, there's this very strange and naive belief that there will be this discrete moment in time where it's all going to happen. Mm. And again, we always tune our, our, our standards, our baseline to the reality we find ourselves in. So we seem to forget that we are, as you said, already co-evolving with our technology. So it is a very gradual process where we change as the technology changes. So this discrete point of transition, like Skynet woke up and now it's conscious, because that's essentially the scenario scenario they have in mind. It's just Terminator, you know? Um, So these guys don't even have any imagination. Um, It's just not what we see happening around us. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right. I think there is there are people who are using this as a smokescreen. You know, look over there while I do this, mm-hmm. and and hopefully you won't notice. Uh, I think there's another uh, uh, bunch of people riding this anti AI bandwagon, and they are, uh, I think, people who are developing this older version or, or defending this older version of humanism that see actually AI robotics as a threat to their whole conception Mm -hmm. of the human condition because if we were to build a robot that could walk and talk and describe itself Mm -hmm. as having internal states then that would really challenge a lot of preconceptions that uh, people have about themselves sure Um, so I think I think people find that threatening Mm -hmm. and I think uh, you know robotics in particular has uh, you know it's 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 almost taken over from uh, the, the zombie or the psychopath, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, the sort of the bad guy in the movie, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's a, there's a reason for that actually, because a, a robot's a much better psychopath than a human psychopath. Mm-hmm. A robot's are even more devoid of emotion or sure. or mm-hmm. compassion potentially. So uh, so it it fits with our cultural imagination to see these things as dangerous. So it's an easy story for the mm-hmm. media to sell. So of course, I mean, for all of these reasons, yes, it's in the headlines a lot perhaps far more than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And what what would be better, I guess, is if we can have, uh, and I think it's partly the fault of the community not to do more to mm-hmm. communicate about the science and the research. I mean, so like you say, sometimes uh, people look behind the curtain mm-hmm. and you know they see the Wizard of Oz there controlling his DARPA robot mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the DARPA robot falls over and it, it becomes evident that maybe things aren't as advanced as they, they might be. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, if you look at the, the previous DARPA road challenge, uh, the, the initial one, you know, there was the cars got a couple of miles and then crashed. But mm-hmm. then a few years later, they were driving uh, hundreds of miles across the Arizona mm-hmm. desert mm-hmm. by themselves. So these, yeah, these wait. you the can off- make rapid progress. So it's, it's mm-hmm. not an exponential by any means, but there are some sort of sharp, uh, you know, lifts which take you up to another level mm-hmm. and perhaps we have just had one i mean i think mm-hmm. people are extrapolating from the recent advances in in machine learning mm-hmm. to say that we're, we're up on the exponential i think we're not we're we've 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 jumped up a level mm-hmm. uh, and we're now maybe flatline again for a while right and then there might mm-hmm. be another start, sharp jump okay but don't forget with the the self-driving challenge where the stanford robot stanley won 
the team that won was the team with the, the most planners of GPS waypoints for the car to reach. And the only sort of adaptive element that, that made the difference between Stanley and, and Carnegie Mellon was that Stanley had a little reinforcement learning system that would accelerate when there were no obstacles on the road. Right. But the whole planning was done by humans prior to the start. Yeah. So again, much less impressive than you think it is, right? <laughs> so we should be very careful how yeah. we interpret those results. But look, so you're in this, this human brain project as well, uh, which, okay, you, you are an exception, but it's largely a waste of money, in my opinion. And, and we should do something about that because we cannot afford in the face of limited resources to, to throw it away like that. But imagine I give you 10 million, um, let's give you euros because the pound is, has no value anymore. Um, so if I give you 10 million euros for a 10 year project, what would you dedicate that money to? One, so in one word, right? What, what's the key concept or question you would pursue with that? So this is just a, a enormous size project. What about a flagship? I mean, a billion. Okay, flex. I give you a billion. No problem. <laughs> okay, I think yeah, uh, I give you free coffee as well. <laughs> I think if I had a billion euros, yeah. uh, I would be uh, setting out to build uh, human AI systems uh, mm -hmm. that can really think about the challenges that the world faces. Um, I think if you look at the uh, IPCC and uh, the way that that uh, the International pa uh, Panel for Climate Change, and the way that groups of scientists have, and uh, people also looking at the economic and social impacts of climate change, these people have come along and they've worked with very sophisticated computer models. And over a period of time, they've refined these models and they've re refined their thinking to the point that we can now, with pretty high confidence, say that uh, the result of human activity generating CO2 is going to cause uh, levels of temperature rise, which are going to make life bad for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result of that, I mean, you say you, you mentioned the power to explain, predict and control. I think that's a really nice example of it, because the first of all, they, they, they had to build systems that could explain data. And then they had to build systems that could predict what mm -hmm. happened in the future. They're now being able to show that they can predict, you know, from predictions they made 10 years ago, they can point back mm -hmm. and say, this is uh, you know, it's at least as bad as we said it was going to mm -hmm. be, possibly worse. Uh, and then they've also got a, a program of control, which they're proposing. It's, it's not fully fledged. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at the Paris Agreement, it looks like the whole world, with one or two mm -hmm. notable exceptions, mm -hmm. are starting to get behind this. Mm -hmm. And so that was, uh, I wouldn't say it's a science-driven thing, but it was driven mm -hmm. by a community that mm -hmm. really cared about the science of the climate and really thought that if we did this in a, a global way, we could make it in, a, a difference. And I think uh, with a billion euros, we could do the same for some of the other big problems mm -hmm. that we face. Right. And I think the first one we might want to look at is wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. So you would want to build these models to try and understand human social behavior, human economy, You know, as we said, bring the psychology mm -hmm. and the economics together. Right. Uh, and bring forth some proposals mm -hmm. about how we can reorganize uh, world mm -hmm. markets, you know, sort of maybe rethink mm -hmm. the structure of capitalism mm -hmm. in a way that won't favor us going to this extreme, right. because the other alternative is that, that we're going to end up as a society collapsing in some yeah. way, mm -hmm. uh, because you know, the extremes of wealth inequality, mm -hmm. you can already see it in some cities. 
some people living in gated communities uh, with more wealth than they can imagine what to do with, you know, booking trips to the moon and things, and mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, over the world, people living in extreme poverty. So that ought to be a priority. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what the climate change model has showed is that you can really use computers for good mm -hmm. to predict and then, you know, with using these computers then to control. No, this is this is uh, so I completely agree with you. But and what you also see here is that why did the climate change project actually work? Because it gave the tools to humanity to change its metacognition about its own state. Yes. Right. So this is very powerful, and therefore, indeed, I agree with you. The computer models are not necessarily immediately there to interfere with that reality, yeah. but they should help us as humans to develop a metacognitive state to understand our condition so that we can change it for the better. Indeed, that's one of the things I think that I got from Nick Bostrom's book about superintelligence, because he talks about different kinds of superintelligence that you can build. Um, one of them is the oracle. And the oracle you just go along to, and like the oracle of ancient Greece, you can ask any question, mm -hmm. gives you the answer. Uh, and so uh, essentially the climate change scientists have built an oracle. They say, well, what's the temperature going to be like in 10 years? It gives you an answer uh, you know, mm -hmm. within some bounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, he also talks about, well, we could build genies, and genies would be oracles, but they'd also have power to change stuff. And mm -hmm. you know, genies are potentially much more dangerous. Mm -hmm. So if we build these AI oracles, then we still have the control as humanity mm -hmm. decide that what's the best advice you can give us in this situation. The oracle will say, if you did this, then there might mm -hmm. be less wealth inequality. And then we can then choose or mm -hmm. not choose to do that. Right. You know, I think o over time, perhaps we probably will do what the AI says, because mm -hmm. it will, it will It'll turn out well, that those predictions are good. we will shape it. We will also but shape it. Exactly. And it, it will be a human-machine system. Yeah. So it, there will never, mm -hmm. I don't think ever in these climate change systems are they just running an algorithm. Right. It's, it's people interpreting data, putting it into the algorithm, mm -hmm. tweaking the algorithm, right. working out, improving mm -hmm. it all the time. So it's a, it's a human-machine system mm -hmm. which uh, understands an important aspect of our world. So mm -hmm. we should build more of those. Sure. Now, actually, in 2005, as one of our art projects, we presented the Synthetic Oracle. And the whole idea was indeed that you engage with, let's say, an interactive sound and light composition that depends on your actions to create, let's say, a very implicit kind of immersive experience that helps you to meditate on your state. Okay. And actually, was very effective. Of course, it didn't tell you anything about climate change, mm. but <laughs> I think this this. So I think we, we have a principle here, right? It's all about also changing our metacognition so we can understand our own situation. Yeah. That we can step in and, and make a difference, as was done with the the Paris uh, Climate Accord. Mm. But now we have to scale it up because our problems are much broader than that. So, um, okay, Tony, look, I will um, get back to you once I have the billion, but I think uh, we have a good plan for the future. Mm. Um, I, f I forgot to sort of um, uh, try to rip some holes in your uh, in your theories <laughs> about the brain, but I'll do that next time. Yeah. So thank you very much for this thank conversation. <laughs>
www.ebrahamsmith.eu. And thank you for listening.